0: Church, I want to invite you now just to take a moment and humbly come before his throne and surrender those things in your life that you're holding on to, those things in your life that are taking residence in your heart that shouldn't be, that are occupying your mind that shouldn't be, and just surrender, let go those things that were holding on tightly, and just lay them at his feet even now. believe there's somebody here tonight as we're surrendering, as we're letting go, that somebody is holding on to addiction, specifically drugs, and you think that no one knows, and you think that it's okay, and you think you have it under control. Tonight, God's saying, let it go. Let it go before it gets too deep, before it gets too strong, before it begins to destroy families and relationships. So I want to pray for you specifically tonight. If that's you with every head bowed and every eye closed, tonight's tonight you humble yourself in the side of the Lord. I want to pray for you. Is that you? Will you just simply raise your hand. So I can see you. God bless you. Father, I thank you so much, Lord, that you are so graceful. And so merciful, Lord. God, I thank you that nothing is hidden in your sight, God. And I thank you that, Lord, no matter what we try to hold on to, Lord, you just, your loving kindness brings us to repentance, Lord. Anything you ask us and call us to, to let go and to give over to you, Lord, it's for our good and for your glory. And so, God, I pray that as we lay those things over, Lord, that you would take it, forgive us, cleanse us of all unrighteousness, Lord. I pray for all of us who've laid things at your feet, Lord, that we would leave different, Lord. We surrender, Lord. We wave the white flag. We want to be closer, more personal, intimate with you today, now, than ever before, God. And so, Lord, help us. Fill us with your Holy Spirit, Lord. Give us a spirit of boldness, Lord, a spirit of love. Chief characteristic of a believer is the love that we have. And so, Lord, we want to have that love love for each other, love for our families, love for the lost. Lord, not just in word, but in deed. We can say that we love, love, love until we're blue in the face, God, but until we demonstrate the great love by action. Lord, it's not love at all. And so help us to love in word and in deed. Help us to walk like you walk, to talk like you talk. And God, you said that you oppose the proud but give grace to the humble so we humbly come Lord saying that we can't do it without you without your Holy Spirit we don't want to be dependent upon our wisdom our intellect our insight Lord we want to be dependent wholly and fully upon you so give us your strength here tonight Lord to do those things that you've called us to do Lord I pray that you would deliver and relieve some in this place of fear, holding them back from serving you wholeheartedly in the ministries and walking in the giftings that you've called them to. So deliver them, set free, replace the fear with with boldness. God, I pray. That tonight as we open up your word, that you would open up our hearts to receive our eyes to see you, Lord. I pray that no one would leave disappointed, that you would speak to each one personally and individually, Lord. I pray that your spirit would move in this place, that the gifts would be present and prevalent, God, that people would receive words of encouragement, Lord, answers to prayer, that everybody would leave just thinking, wow, that message was just for me. Lord, only you can do that. God, we want to pray for our country. It's crazy to think that a week from today that we will have our president for the next four years. Lord, we pray that your will will be done on election day, God. We pray that you would open up the eyes of the American people to see your heart, your will, and vote according to your principles, Lord. We pray that you would bind the enemy. He's a a liar and a deceiver, that people wouldn't be lied to and deceived by his schemes. Lord, we pray against any fraud or any attempts that He's going to make to, to have His way, Lord. We want your will to be done. But God, you're on the throne. You're in control. You're sovereign. You're our hope. So we're so thankful. Whatever happens next Tuesday, Lord, you're still good. Lord, we can still call into you. You'll still answer us. And so, Lord, give us peace. Help us not to worry or fret. None of this caught you by surprise. And so, God, have your way, Lord. We just want to pray for even our county. These fires are devastating, so close to home, Lord. So many people are being (coughs) displaced, forced to to leave, God. I pray that the damage would be small, nobody would get hurt, or life would be lost. Protect our firefighters and our first responders that are out protecting us during this time, Lord. And I pray that you would use this as an eye-opening opportunity for people to turn to you. So God, just be here with us tonight. We pray these things in Jesus' name. We all say amen. God bless you guys. You may. All right, if you guys have your Bibles this evening, you can open it up to the book of Acts chapter 23. We're gonna be looking at verses uh, 12 through 35 this evening. We are picking up, finishing this chapter. Pastor Brad uh, preached a message on Sunday morning covering the first 11 verses where Paul stood before the council and um, in his defense. And so we're picking up on that second Part of Acts chapter 23, and we're going to be looking at verse 12 this evening. So Acts chapter 23, verse 12, it says this. When it was day, the Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves under an oath, saying that they would neither eat nor drink until they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who formed this plot and they came to the chief priests and the elders and they said, we have bound ourselves under a solemn oath to taste nothing until we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you and the council notify the commander to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case by a more thorough investigation. And we, for our part, are ready to slay him before he comes near the place. So after he had came before the council, it did not go well. We know that he had um, greatly made the high priest upset the way that he spoke with him. And so we see here that there was a group of people, more than 40 that come together and had a plot to slay and to kill the apostle Paul. And so we pick up after that situation, that encounter that he had with the council when he uh, kind of backtalked the high priest. And it says the very next day, so the next morning, the Apostle Paul, um, after he was before the high priest, they began to plot an oath. And this was a very, very serious oath that they plotted. It says that they will never neither eat nor drink until they had killed Paul. And as we see in verse 12, This wasn't just a couple of people that had gotten together to to make a little pact, to make a little coup, to come together to do something. It says there was more than 40 people who said, we're not going to eat nor drink until the Apostle Paul is killed. They used words like, we are going to slay him and murder him and kill him. And we're not going to eat. We're not going to taste anything until that happens. This oath. This pact that over 40 people were willing to make, it shows exactly how serious they were in killing the Apostle Paul. This wasn't a casual slip of tongue or an overreaction or an overreach that they were saying. They were very, very serious. This was the same language that was used in Galatians chapter 1. Turn there real quick. Galatians chapter 1, verse 8 and 9. The same language that was used there is also used here. Galatians chapter 1. It says this in verse 8. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he shall be what? Accursed. And it goes on in verse 9. As we have said before, so I will say again now. If any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you have received, he is to be accursed. The same language that Paul was writing to the church in Glacier, referring to people that might distort or might manipulate the gospel, that they should be accursed, damned, is the same word that they use here. Basically what they were saying is they were taking an oath that may God curse us, may God damn us if we do not kill the Apostle Paul. This was serious. This was a serious oath that they were making before man and ultimately before God. Now, these men were committed zealots, as we see, to say the least. These men were all in for what they believed, even though they were off. They believed that the Apostle Paul was opposite of the God that they worshipped, opposite of the Scriptures. They were so upset and so vehemently angry at what the Apostle Paul was preaching, they were willing to kill, to murder, and to do terrible things. That's how strongly they believed. But they were off. It reminds us of what the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Rome, Rome, uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 2, where he says that zeal without knowledge is dangerous. These men were zealots. They were all in for the cause. They stood strongly upon what they believed, but their knowledge, they were off base, which causes very much concern and danger, as we see here. You see, in this, we're reminded of something that is important and sobering and for not only us, but for everyone to understand, because you're zealous, because you have radical devotion to a cause, to a religion, to anything, it doesn't mean that you're necessarily right with the true and living God. These men were religious. They were devout, according to the law, but it wasn't the true God, and we can see that in religions and groups of people today. Willing to die, thinking that they may have some sort of special inheritance in heaven. Whether it's a certain amount of virgins or another planet, whatever it is, they're zealous to their cause. But it's zeal without knowledge. Knowledge of the truth, the true and living God, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So we can't equate zeal and devotion and passion with being right with God. And so I've seen that with my very own eyes. Some of the most zealous, passionate people are misled. And sadly, on their way to hell, I remember being at one of the largest Buddhist temples in the world. It's in Nepal, very, very close to the Tibetan region, very close to the border of China. And you walk around and you you, you see these people literally with knee pads on their faces before God, praying for hours and hours upon end. And after they would do that, they would walk around the temple and there was these prayer wheels and they would spin these wheels over and over, repeating prayers and these mantras. Hours and hours of devotion and dedication. And then after that, the part that would grieve your heart the most is they would have these huge bells. And it would have the thing that would hang down. And they would go then and they would start ringing these bells and the sound dong and dong over and over in your head. And you see these people and they keep ringing and ringing. And what they're doing is attempting to wake up their God. Wake up their God, and you just, your heart breaks. Zeal, passion, without knowledge of the truth. So passionate, but so off at the same time. And so when we think about this zeal and this passion, for those of us who know the truth, the truth through God's word who's revealed himself, we understand who Jesus is. We need to have that zeal and that passion, but it's rooted in knowledge and the truth of who Jesus is and what he came to do. That is it. The woman at the well. Jesus asked her a couple couple of questions. If you knew who I was, really, if you knew who God was, what he wanted to do for you, and the plan that he had for you, you would say, can I give you a drink? I mean, the lady was confused on a couple of things. Who God was, what he wanted to do, and the plans that he had for her. We're not confused on these things. So we need to have that kind of passion, that kind of zeal. And so... Zeal without knowledge, it's dangerous. And so they come up with this plot to tell Claudius, the commander of the guard, that the Sanhedrin had more questions for the Apostle Paul. They wanted to talk to him a little more, more thoroughly investigate him. And as he was on the way back to the Sanhedrin, these 40 men would ambush him, and they would slay him, and they would kill him. That was the plan that they came up with and even just that plan it's crazy to think that men who were so devout so religious according to the law were willing not only to kill and to slay but also to lie so openly just outright lie religious devout men to come up to kill this man it's also very interesting and worth pointing out that when they came up with this evil plot They're scheming, and they're getting together, coming up. How can we get the Apostle Paul? We're not going to eat. We're not going to drink. We're not going to taste anything until we kill him. So they come up with this plot on how they're going to do it. And it says in verse 14, once they came up, notice who they took it to. Normally, when you came up with a plot, whether it was to do uh, evil or to kill in this case, you might go to maybe a, a rough part of town to find a rough group of guys Maybe some criminals where you knew the bad guys in town. We all know where the bad guys hang around. And you go there and you're like, hey, man, I'm trying to find somebody to do, some, do a crime for me. You don't got to pay them very much. That's not what these men do. Notice who they go to when they come up with this plot. It says in verse 14, the chief priests and the elders. Hey, we got a plan. We're going to kill some people. And we come up with this great scheme. Who are we going to go to? Let's go to the leaders of the church. Let's go to the religious leaders. We need them to get in on it. That shows you how far Jerusalem, how far the religious leaders of this time were from God. It's so sad. And so telling that these people ran to, who they ran to, to conspire with. It got me thinking, what do people run to you for? Are you the person that people run to when they feel comfortable gossiping and, and talking and, and backbiting another group of people? I got a friend and, you know, he'll, he'll be talking sometimes. Yeah, they came up to me and this guy was telling me this. And finally I had to stop and ask him and say, why are people so comfortable coming up to you gossiping? I don't know. I never thought about that. Why? Are you the person that people run to when they, when they got some juicy stuff? when they got some tea, when they got some water cooler talk. Are you the one? You don't want to be that person. Think about that. This is who the religious leaders, this is who the elders were of the time. We as believers, we want to be those people that they come to in time of real need, when they need to get ministered to, when they need to get prayed for, when they have a question about serious things of life that they run to us. Those are the people we want to be coming to us, not those who are conspiring and gossiping. And plotting. And so they come to the chief priest after taking this oath with this plan to kill the apostle Paul. And it says in verse 16, But the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, and he came, and he entered the barracks, and he told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions to him, and he said, Lead this young man to the commander, for he has something to report to him. And so he took him, and he led him to the commander, and he said, He said, Paul the prisoner called me to him and asked me to leave this young man to you since he has something to tell you. The commander took him by the hand and stepping aside began to inquire of him privately. What is it that you have to report to me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to you to bring Paul down tomorrow to the council as though they were going to inquire somewhat more thoroughly about him. So do not listen to them. For more than 40 of them are lying in wait for him, who have bound themselves under a curse not to eat or drink until they slay him. And now they are ready and waiting for the promise from you. And so the commander let the young man go, instructing him, tell no one that you have notified me of these things. And so their plot, their scheming, they're evil ways. It profits nothing, and it's never the case. It never happens where you plot and you scheme, and it turns out good. And so the Apostle Paul's nephew happened to be there. He heard it. He goes to Paul. Paul goes to the guard, and ultimately the plot goes all the way up to the commander. And he says, thank you so much, and don't let anyone know about what you have heard. And it's interesting because as they were going over the plot, we see in verse 16, the son of Paul's sister Heard And he ran and told Paul. It's remarkable that Paul's nephew just so happened to be within an earshot of this plot and this plan of what was going on. He just so happened, out of all the timing, everything that was going on, that he just happened to hear this. In this, we're reminded and we see that God moves so, you know, supernaturally, naturally. This wasn't a coincidence, This wasn't by chance. This was within the sovereign design and plan of God. And it might be easy for someone to dismiss this simple encounter as a coincidence. This simple act of God as a coincidence if we really don't see it. Oh, it was by chance? What are the odds that the Apostle Paul's nephew just happened to walk by and hear these things? odds would be very, very small, slim to none. This was God. God had set this up. God had orchestrated this whole thing. It reminds me the story of Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 19. When Elijah was on the run from Jezebel, and he was looking for guidance, he was looking for direction. It was after the encounter with the prophets, and he was running, he was discouraged, he was down, he was looking for direction. And he was looking for God in these big manifestations, these big encounters that God was going to speak to him. And he found God not in any of those things. And so often we look for God to speak for us, Thus saith the Lord. Because obviously God talks in New King James, right? We expect this. Like We need to see the Red Sea, the, the sky part. And we think that that is how God speaks. And I'm not saying that's not how God speaks. I know people who've heard audible voices from God. Some don't, and that's okay. How many of you guys have never heard an audible voice of God but have still been led to? Yeah. And that's okay. God leads through people, God leads through His Word. Some people hear audible voices. God speaks to me in a Jamaican accent. It's amazing. No, I'm just kidding. He doesn't. But that's okay if we don't hear in that way. And we look, and if we look for this in the big, the manifestations, the, the powerful voice, the thunder and lightning, sometimes we're going to miss. And we can miss what we see here, a miraculous act of God, him setting up this situation, because we're thinking, oh, that's too small. No, this was God. Look at uh, 1 Kings chapter 19. Let's turn there real quick. 1 Kings chapter 19, we see how Elijah was looking for this guidance and this direction from God and these, these big things. But that's not where he was. First Kings chapter 19, and let's look at verse 11. 1 Kings 19, 11. Page 314, if you have the same Bible as me. Anybody have that? 314? Well, it's all right. 314, uh, verse 11, it says this And so he said, Go forth and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord was passing by, and a great and strong wind was was rending the mountains and breaking into pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a sound of a gentle blowing. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle when he went out and he stood in the entrance of the cave and behold, a voice came to him and said, what are you doing here? He was looking for the Lord. There was an earthquake, there was fire, there was wind, there was all these powerful manifestations and he was looking for God in those things. And it says, God was not in any of those things. The New King James Version says, it was in the still small voice. After all those things passed, it was a still small voice in which God spoke to him. It wasn't the big, the fire, the smoke, the wind, the earthquake. It was just a still small voice to his heart. And oftentimes that's how God speaks. And that's what we see here, just this very simple but yet powerful way that God revealed their plot to the Apostle Paul. His nephew happened to be there. It wasn't the Apostle Paul sleeping and God waking him up and shaking and said, they're coming to get you. No, his nephew. And so for us in this world, we're reminded that we need to, to look for God in everything. God can speak to his word. He can speak to our hearts so subtly, so softly. And if we're not just intent and in looking and searching and seeking and open for him to truly speak to us, we might miss it. We might discount it as all oh, that was just an idea that was just an idea. I was praying for an upcoming message. You know, we we got holidays coming up and Christmas time and those types of things. And I was like, wow, Lord, Christmas. And all of a sudden, five minutes later, I started thinking about the Christmas story. And next thing you know, I realized, oh my goodness. Whoa, that's, that's good. That's not me i got to write this stuff down real quick. It wasn't a voice. It was just the Christmas story going over from a, a, a unique perspective. And I'm thinking, wow, Lord, I was just meditating upon the Christmas message. And next thing you know, you just gave me something. Now, I could have been thinking, wow, we, we just, you know, I, I know that was the Lord. And so when we see these things, it takes maturity and discernment to really hear the voice of the Lord, to tune our voice. He says, my sheep know my voice. And we know whether it's a thought, whether it's through someone else. There's times I've been talking to somebody, and they'll tell me something. And all of a sudden, I'll say, aha. And they look at me like I'm crazy. It happens a lot. And I'm like, you just answered a prayer. And they're like, what? I'm like, man, I've been praying about something. You just started telling me something. That is God using you. Thank you so much. And they're just like, I'm just telling you. I know. But I, I've been looking for guidance and direction. But if I didn't... If I wasn't aware and in tune, I might miss it. And I don't want us to miss it because I believe there's some of us in this place that have been looking and searching and seeking, and we're thinking that it's in this big manifestation, but it's simple. It may even come through our kids. It may come through anything. And so be open and discern what God is doing, or we might miss it. I think about the time that God was calling me into ministry. I was broken, and I was destitute, and I wanted to serve the Lord so bad. And I didn't know what he had for me. So I'm working in like a steel workers union. I was just a, it was a dead end job. And I'm just going, I'm just driving to work. And I would drive past this place every single day on my way to work. I worked across the street from the Catella Deli at a little place called Arrowhead Products. And so I'm there and I'm, I'm driving by. And all of a sudden, I'll never forget it. I'm driving right by this place. And I'm like, Lord, I just want to, I serve you. And all of a sudden, I heard a voice, and it wasn't God. It was John LaBelle. And it says, all I heard was, hey, why don't you and Naomi come and help me out in junior high? And remember, every single time we would see this guy, hey, come and help us in junior high, come and help us in junior high, come and help us in junior high. We would see him coming, and we would go running. We didn't want to help him in junior high. I don't know why. It's nothing personal. We just didn't feel that's we, We didn't. But here I am praying, God, what do you have for me? What do you have for me? I was looking for the revelation. I was looking for the manifestation, the Red Sea parting. This is what I have for you. I'm praying every single time I'd see John Bell. Hey, man, come and help in junior high. That was the answer. But I couldn't discern it. I couldn't. I I was missing it. And then, you know, come and help me in junior high. As soon as I got home, I called him up. By God's grace, that's, that's it. That's how it got started. Started serving in junior high. And... It was a blessing, and so we can't miss those things. I was just talking to a brother today, who just recently uh, got a new job, and you know it was you know he took a a pay cut, but it was something that God really he knew that God had for him, and he wasn't sure what he was going to do and how he was going to do it, but he knew that God wanted him to do it. And so today, randomly out of the blue, somebody called him up and said, "Hey, the rates are really low, and we could refinance your house, and we could do this and save you a lot of money." And he'd been praying, Lord, I don't know how I'm going to do this. But God said, I'm going to do this for you. And he knew this was the Lord. He was praying, God, I know you want me. How are you going to take care of me? And it's little things like this. And he attributed, he knew that this was the Lord. So we need to be open to see what God is doing. Because he moves supernaturally naturally. We don't want to miss it. we got to be able to discern, Lord, is that you? And so the nephew hears this. And this plot, it could not have been executed. It couldn't have happened. It had to, God had to, to, to break this down because of the words that Jesus had given the Apostle Paul in uh, verse 11 of chapter 23. 2311. Jesus came to him and he says, Take courage, for you have solemnly witnessed to my cause at Jerusalem, so you must also witness at where? Rome. So th- this couldn't have been the end for the Apostle Paul. And so God had to do something because God was going to take him to Rome. And what God says was going to happen will happen. And so he set this whole thing up to unfoil this because God wasn't done with him. And so with the mention of his nephew here, which... This guy was used in a powerful way. We don't know if he was a believer. We don't know much about him. Matter of fact, we don't know much about any of the Apostle Paul's family throughout the Scriptures. But we know that God used him here. And this is the only direct reference to an Apostle Paul's family member throughout the Scripture. But we know that he had a family. The Apostle Paul was a member of the Sanhedrin. And to be a member of the Sanhedrin, you would have to be married. And so many historians believe that the Apostle Paul's family disowned him turned their back upon him when he became a Christian and when he began to follow Christ. And so, the Apostle Paul's family, we're not, we don't know much about. But we know that he, he suffered loss. He wrote about it in Philippians chapter 3, verse 8. And he said, I, I, everything, I, I lost a lot. But he didn't count it. He didn't hold on to it. Everything that he gained in Christ, it was good. And so, Whatever he lost, whether his family turned their back on him, he didn't see that as a, worth going back. It didn't hinder him. It didn't stop him from doing those things that God had called him to. He's willing to, to let go of those things that were holding him back. And I want to encourage you to do the same thing too. There's things that we have to give up, things that we might have to let go of or we might lose for the name of Christ. But God will be no man's debtor. and Whatever we give up, it is for our good and for his glory. And so you're taking notes and write down, God, is is there anything else that I need to give up? Anything else that I need to to let go, that I'm holding too tightly, that you want to remove, that's holding me back? And so the Apostle Paul is now a prisoner. It's weird to see in verse 18 where it says, the Apostle Paul, the prisoner. Paul had a lot of titles throughout the scriptures that were fitting, and Paul, the prisoner, was not one. Why? Because he was innocent of everything. He was in custody and he will be in custody. This is a title that he would have for the remainder of the book of Acts. He would be in custody here for two years, two and a half years, and in Rome for another two, two and a half years. But he would be a prisoner in custody for the rest of his life. And it wasn't fitting because he was innocent. But even in this simple phrase, the Apostle Paul, the prisoners, we, we see a fulfillment of Scripture. We remember in Acts chapter uh, 21, if you turn back, Acts 21, 11, it says, Acts chapter 21, 11, And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands, and he said, This is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way... The Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt, and he will be delivered over to the hands of the Gentiles. This was a prophecy that was fulfilled here. He's handed over to the Romans, and he will be in protective custody. And being handed over to the Gentiles, he got to identify with Christ. In Matthew chapter 20, the same prophecy was spoken of Jesus. And so, Paul the prisoner, fulfillment of prophecy. We look at verse 23, and we pick up there. It says, and he called to him, two of the centurions, and he said, get 200 soldiers ready by the third hour of the night to proceed to Caesarea. Then with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen, they were also to provide mounts to put Paul on and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. And he wrote a letter having this form, Claudius Lysias, the most excellent governor Felix, greetings. Greetings. When this man was arrested by the Jews and was about to be slain by them, I came up to them with the troops and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman. And wanting to ascertain the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. And I found him to be accused over questions about their law, but under no accusation deserving death or imprisonment. When I was informed that there would be a plot against this man, I sent him to you at once, also instructing his accusers to bring their charges against him before you. And so the commander catches wind. Claudius catches wind of what's going on. He says, we got to get him out of here. And so he rounds up this arm and he gets all the horsemen and the spearmen together and he gets Paul out of town. And in verse 23, we see an amazing escort that God would set up for the Apostle Paul. Look at verse 16, it's, at 23, it says, He called the centurions to set up an escort of 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen. This is amazing. If I was the Apostle Paul and this whole thing was being set up, I couldn't help but just smile at the goodness and the sovereignty and the faithfulness of God. There was a plot against his life, and God organizes and sets up this huge caravan to protect him as he's leaving Jerusalem. He must have think, my God is so good. No weapon formed against me shall prosper. These 40 men are not going to eat and drink until my life is taken. And here God is rallying up over an army of 400 people to escort me out of town. He couldn't help but just feel so special and so loved by God's protection and his faithfulness. And so they left at 9 p.m. to be undercover. And remember, Jesus told Paul that he would go to Rome. But who would have thought that that journey would have started with this royal transport of over 470 soldiers? 470 soldiers. Now, it's interesting. We never find out about those 40 men who took the oath not to eat or drink I don't know if they died of starvation. I don't know what happened. But we see that they, they, they got out of town and the Apostle Paul was protected and they were not going to take his life. And so all this happened because of God's goodness and his grace to the Apostle Paul. Also, Claudius set this up in motion to ensure the Apostle Paul's safety while he was in his possession. This would not have happened if he wasn't a Roman citizen. And it's mind-blowing, and it's, and it's humbling just to think, amazing to think, that God used the Apostle Paul's citizenship and preparation for things that he would do down the road. If the Apostle Paul wasn't a Roman citizen, he wouldn't have had this kind of care. But even God used where he was born and his citizenship as part of his divine will. And so now Paul's on his way to see Felix the governor. Felix is a very interesting man. We'll find out next week his defense and his trial before Felix, but he was a former slave, the only and the first former slave to become a governor, such a high-ranking and prestigious position. History tells us in great deal and detail about the evil nature that this man Felix had. He was eventually, I mean, even within the Roman Government. He was eventually banished from Rome because the way that he treated people and because of his corruption. He got disbanded and kicked out of town about two years after this was written. History also tells us he was a very immoral man. He had three wives um, and many, many concubines and of the sort. One um, was his current wife, Drusilla, was the daughter of Herod Agrippa. And so we learn, and we know a lot about him, and he was only able to come in power. How would a slave do that? Because his brother was good friends with Caesar Nero. And so he was a slave who is now a governor, a powerful, high-ranking man. But he never forgot where he came from. He never forgot that he was a slave. One historian said this about Felix, that he executes the ways of a king with the spirit of a slave. Even though he was a king to rule and to reign and to make decisions, every decision he made, he made as if he was a slave. No matter how high he climbed up the political ranks, so much, how much power and wealth he would amass, he still had the mentality of a slave. He still thought like a slave and he had a bend towards the world. He wanted to get back to the world. He wanted to get back to people who treated him bad when he was a slave because of his upbringing. The way that he was raised, the things that he went through as a slave, it molded him and shaped him, his mentality for the bad. He was a slave, even though he was a governor. And the same can happen if we're not careful with us at times. The way that we are brought up, our mentality and our identity can go with the way that we were brought up or the way that we were raised that molds us and shapes us. But in Christ, he gives us a new mentality and a new identity that's found in him. And if we're not careful, we can still bring that old junk into who we are as Christians. I know Christians who are, who are just quick to fight. Because their whole life they've been fighters. They've had to fight for everything. They were given nothing. And so there's this fighter mentality. And it's not necessarily negative. I'm not talking about go-getters. I'm not talking about those. But you say anything to them, they're just ready. To, not just even necessarily physically fight. But yeah, some Christians are willing to do that too. But they're just fighters by nature the way they were shaped, the way they grew up. They had to fight for everything. Not necessarily Christians, but just people in general. There's some other people that are, by nature, um, by the way they were raised and by the way they were brought up, they have a complex and thinking that they were better than others because the way that they were brought up. Maybe they were affluent. Maybe they came from a powerful family. Maybe they had money. And so naturally, they just think that maybe they're just a little bit better. By the way they were brought up, it was no doing of their own. You know, they were born on third base and they thought that they hit a triple. You know, they thought it was something that they did, but it was just the way that they were born. And they looked down upon people because that's the way that they were brought up. And we gotta make sure as Christians that we don't identify with the past, that we don't identify with the the old mentality. Whatever it may be, whether we're fighters, whether we're victims, we are new in Christ, new creations, a new mentality, a new identity in Christ. We can't tap into the, to the old mentality, and to our old identity. And so in this letter that Claudius writes Felix, he says he came up and rescued the apostle Paul in verse 27. Notice how he makes himself sound like a hero. He was the one that had him bound. He was the one that had ordered him to get scourged. He was getting ready to, to beat him until he found out he was a Roman, but he makes no mention of that at all. In verse 27, he says, I came up to them with the troops, and I rescued him. I'm a hero. He didn't want, he didn't tell the truth. This man was a Roman citizen, and he was in jeopardy of getting in serious trouble. And so he, he gets ready to send him out, and he sends him out with this letter. And we pick up in verse 31, it says this. So the soldiers, in accordance with their orders, took Paul, and they brought him by night to Antiparis, And the next day, leaving the horsemen to go on with him, they returned to the barracks. And when he had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they also presented Paul to him. And when he read it, he asked from what province he was. And when he had learned that he was from Silasilia, he said, I will give you a hearing after your accusers arrive also, giving orders for him to be kept in Herod's praetorium. And so finally, the Apostle Paul gets to where he's going, and he makes a little bit of a stop, and he stops in Antipatris. Now, this was a stop that was about 40 miles from Jerusalem, but 25 miles out um, from Caesarea. Now, at this point, a certain amount of the soldiers went back because the first part of the journey, it was in a mountainous region, which was easy for ambush. And so once he got to this part, it was smooth sailing, and so some of the guys went back. So the first thing Felix does when he gets this letter, he wants to make sure that he's within his jurisdiction. So he asks him, where are you from? And finds out that he's, in fact, within his jurisdiction. And after looking over everything in verse 35, he says, man, I'm going to give you a trial. I'm going to look over your case, and, and we'll wait for your accusers to arrive. And so next Wednesday, we'll see the trial before this evil and wicked man. But this would be, once again, yet another opportunity for the Apostle Paul to preach the gospel, to share the hope that lies within him with this high-ranking person. And even by doing this, the fact that he's a governor, this might be the highest-ranking person in government that the Apostle Paul had preached to to this point. And even with that, he fulfills a scripture, fulfills a prophecy from Acts chapter 9, verse 15, where he said he would bear the name of Jesus before magistrates, before kings, and before major leaders. And so... Next week, we'll pick that up. And so Felix ordered him. He put him on house arrest. It says in Herod's Praetorium. Now, this would be where he would spend the next two years before going to Rome for another two and a half or three years. And so he'd be in custody. A man who was so free. A man who went and did exactly what God wanted him to do. He was here, he was there, but now he would be bound he would have no more freedom, per se, in the world's eyes. But he was still able to serve the Lord. He was still able to write letters. He wasn't focused on what he couldn't do, but what he could do during this time. But no doubt this was probably a little discouraging at times. And was that what brought him through that? You think about people who, whether they're soldiers, they go out to war and they come back and they lose limbs. They use legs or whatever, and, and, and they're discouraged because their lives aren't the same. And it's heartbreaking. What carries them through? What carried Paul through this tough time? The same thing that carries us through difficult times. The promises of God. God's word. He had to hold on to that which he preached, that which he knew was true. He had to hold on to it more than ever. What a picture and encouragement for us, too, when we're going through difficult times. The promises of God. The love of God. Those are the things that are going to carry and bring us through. And so in closing, let's not be the ones that people run to, that they, the ones that people feel comfortable gossiping and talking and plotting and scheming to. Let's not be those people. Let's be the people that they run to when they need prayer, encouragement to get ministered to. Let's be open to seeing how God moves supernaturally, naturally. Let's not miss those things in our lives. And remember, God's word is true and so are his promises. And let's hold on to those and allow them to carry us through tough times. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you so much for tonight, God. Lord, we thank you that we can open up your word and it's alive. It's a lamp unto our feet. and It's so applicable to what we are going through today. What we need today. And so, God, we don't want to be just hearers. We want to be doers of your word. And so allow your word to sink into our heart. Allow us to meditate upon it day and night. And even as we worship you now, God, I pray that you would be speaking in that still, small voice. Those things that you'd have us to take from your word. Those things you'd have us to apply from your word. And so, God, as we worship, we pray that your spirit would be here. Ministering, God, we also pray that we would be here, that we wouldn't just look at this time to, to go and get ready for tomorrow, that we would be here, that we would really press into your Holy Spirit and really worship you, that you would move in this place, God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.